So I'm Pastor Michael, and um, we're doing a two-part sermon series on the problem of race and then the gospel answer to it. And um, I want you to know that the problem of race is not a uniquely American problem, but it is a human problem. Because we see racial exclusion and racial strife in literally every nation of the world, without exception, all throughout human history. So that as long as human beings have been gathered together into tribes, we have hated the people in the other tribes. Jonathan Haidt, who I quoted last week, and uh, he's one of my favorite writers, in his book, The Righteous Mind, he says that an essential part of what makes a tribe cohesive, right? an essential part of what Uh, brings people together and gives them the sense of unity is that you have to define your tribe against all the other tribes, right? A common enemy brings people together. And this creates one of the central paradoxes in the human condition. Because the same groupish instinct that um, produces... Uh, heroic acts of altruism where people are willing to lay down their lives for their countrymen, for their kinsmen, is also the instinct that produces genocide, war, oppression. And so this is the problem of race. It's our hive instinct. And this problem of race and the problem of racism is one of the major themes in the Bible. And it's something that I became so much more convinced of as I have been preparing for these two sermons. Because if you have eyes to see, it is everywhere in Scripture. And it begins in Genesis chapter 10 with the table of nations. Humanity is divided up into these tribes and clans and all the conflicts that brings. But then the answer begins in Genesis chapter 12 when God promises Abraham that in you all the families, all the clans of the world will be blessed. And then it continues in the story of Israel and in the prophets. Isaiah says Israel was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. And then it climaxes in Jesus When he gives the Great Commission in Matthew 28, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And then it culminates finally in the book of Revelation where we see this multi-ethnic, multi-national congregation worshiping the Lamb of God. And then all throughout, the Bible is constantly um, recognizing and addressing the problem of racial discord. And you see it in the story of Jacob and Esau and the nations that they represent, Israel and Edom. They're at each other's throats. They're trying to kill each other. And you see it in the prophet Jonah, who would rather die than preach the gospel to the Ninevites. And you see it in Peter, the apostle Peter, who refuses to eat with the Gentiles in the church of Antioch in Galatians chapter 2. This is the story of the Bible. It is the story of human fallenness and of racial division. And we looked at this last week. And in this week, we're going to focus on the gospel answer, the resources that the Bible gives us. 
And we began last week by looking at the, the doctrine of the Imago Dei, which says that all human beings possess this inerasable dignity that comes from God. And then today we're going to look at um, three more resources. And so this is my outline. Here are my points. Number one, we're going to look at the Bible's theology of ethnicity. Number two, we're going to, I'm going to uh, tackle this thorny question. You know, is racism a matter of individual hearts or is it a structural problem? And then finally, we're going to see the lamb who was slain. And just like last week, uh, I apologize. This sermon is going to be a little bit on the long side, okay? Um, if it's any comfort to you, you should see what was left on the cutting board. Um, but there's just so much to be said, and it was hard for me not to say what I felt was needed to be said. All right, so no time to waste. Let's begin. Number one, a theology of ethnicity. And here we're going to look at Revelation chapter 7. Scott, you could post it on the um, screen. We're going to read verses 9 through 10. This is the Apostle John speaking, and this is going to be our main text. Um, we're going, I'm going to refer to it um, over the through the sermon, but let me read it for you. Okay, verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the word of God. So, let me give you a general principle of interpretation. You can take it down now, Scott. Let me give you a, a general principle of interpretation, okay? How the Bible ends is a big clue as to what the story is all about. And the Bible ends with this vision of a multi-ethnic congregation worshiping the Lamb of God. And you see this fourfold description, every nation, tribe, people, and language. And that fourfold description appears, right, each time in different order, a total of seven times in the book of Revelation, again and again, which tells us this is not some accidental detail, but this is intentional and this is purposeful. And what this tells us, therefore, is that God desires and has foreordained the salvation of a people from every ethnicity. Because that word in Revelation, nation, comes from, uh, is the Greek word ethnos, and ethnos is where we get our English word ethnicity. What is an ethnicity? An ethnicity is a group of people who share a common heritage, a common culture. You know, usually they, they live in a common land and they share a, a common language. And I say usually because, you know, I'm, uh, I'm Korean. I'm Korean-American. But um, I can, I've completely lost my ability to speak the Korean language, which for a Korean is very shameful to admit, right? But 
Nevertheless, I still consider myself Korean, you know, if the Koreans will still have me so. So it's usually a common language, but not always. And anthropologists estimate that there are 9,000 ethno-linguistic people groups in the world. And what Revelation is telling us that is that every single one of them is precious to God. And he will save a people from all of them, all the nations. So why is this emphasized? Why is this so important to God? You know, why isn't it simply enough that a great multitude will be saved? A multitude that no one could number, right? Why is the emphasis not just on the quantity of people, but on the diversity of the people. You see the same language all throughout the Psalms. So you have, for example, Psalm 67, verses 3 to 4. We looked at this in the call to worship. Listen to this. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations, in the Greek translation there would be ethnos, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Or listen to Psalm 96, verses 3 to 4. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, he is to be feared above all God. So why is it important that the nations worship God? And the answer is that if God were to be acknowledged only by this narrow band of Israelites, that would mean that the God of the Bible is just like all the other gods of the ancient world, a regional deity, a God who is limited to a certain uh, space and to a certain culture and people. But our God, the God of the Bible, is the God of the whole world. And Habakkuk and Isaiah says, the knowledge of his glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Or you could think about it this way. If a work of art were to be admired and appreciated only in one country, only in one region of the world, then we would say that it has limited cultural appeal. But if that same work of of art were to captivate and enthrall the whole globe, people from every nation of the world, we can truly say it is a masterpiece. If the God of the Bible is truly God, he would be praised in every nation and in every language. Um, Recently, I saw a video of uh, the blessing song. I don't know if you've seen that. It's where churches sing this uh, blessing over their city. And in one of the songs I saw, there was a a section of the song where people, different people sang the song in their native language, in their native tongue. And as I was listening to this, right, the song in different languages, I started to weep because it's so beautiful. Because my God is the God of the whole world. And he will be praised in every language of the world. Now, let's think through the implications of this. What this tells us, what Revelation 7 tells us, is that ethnicity is something that is good 
and beautiful that God created and that he delights in. And this is important for you to hear. Ethnicity is not a result of the fall. Ethnic strife and division, that is from the fall. So that we have taken something good and this beautiful thing and we have perverted it and we have used it for war and oppression. But ethnicity itself, languages and cuisines and skin color, that is beautiful to God. And that was his intention all along to create humanity as this multitudinous variety. And we see this in um, Acts chapter 17. It's a very important passage for this point. Paul is preaching at Mars Hill in Athens. And this is what he says in verse 26. Listen carefully. He says, And God made from one man, that's Adam, every nation, that's ethnos, every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth, listen to this, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God. What is Paul saying? He's saying ethnicity is not the result of the fall or the Tower of Babel, but it was God's intention all along because Paul says it was determined beforehand. From God's eternal counsel, he allotted space, uh, times and boundaries in which ethnicities can flourish and develop. Otherwise, if ethnicity is the result of sin, why would it be preserved in the new heavens and the new earth? It could not be. God created ethnicity, and now God in the, the new covenant is gathering them all together into his church. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the nations, all the ethnos. And then he gives us this great missionary task to go to the ends of the earth, to the jungles of Papua New Guinea, to the savannas of Africa, to the steppe country of Central Asia, and to bring in the harvest of the nations so that the church becomes this beautiful, multicolored, multi-ethnic tapestry of peoples. That's the storyline of the Bible. And that is, I believe, the answer to the problem of race in our world. Because in a fallen world, ethnicity is a source of separation, division, hostility. But in Christ, Ethnicity is now a precious gift. And the church is enriched by the perspectives and capacities of human ethnicity. And in the church, our ethnic expressions and experiences don't clash, but they blend together in beautiful harmony, like in a choir. See, what makes choir music beautiful is not that everyone sings in the same monotonous voice, But the fact that you have all of these different voices singing in all these different vocal ranges, and it doesn't produce some cacophonous noise, but it blends together in beautiful harmony, produces this beautiful sound. That's the image of the church. And therefore, I think it is unhelpful 
when people, in answer to the problem of racism, say we need to be colorblind. You know, the answer is that we need a colorblind society. Now, I understand what they mean, and I think the statement is well-intentioned. But what that ends up doing is it ends up flattening out the ethnic identities and expressions of the people in the minority. So that what ends up happening is that the majority ethnicity, the majority culture, because you know there's no such thing as a neutral ethnicity. Everyone has an ethnicity. The majority ethnicity ends up becoming dominant and then swallowing up people in the minority. You know, in the early church, there was a major debate whether Gentiles needed to become Jews. Because as Gentile believers were coming into the church, the Jewish believers who were in the majority said, well, they need to become circumcised. They need to keep the kosher food laws. And what they were trying to do is they were trying to turn the Gentiles into Jews. But in Acts chapter 15, the Holy Spirit speaking, this is um, the Jerusalem Council, it's a very important chapter in Acts. The Holy Spirit speaking through the apostles said that circumcision is not required. The kosher food laws are not required. In other words, don't make them Jews. Let the Gentiles come into the church with all of their ethnic particularities and idiosyncrasies and all of their wonderful differences, right? You know, let the Greek people eat Greek food, which included pork, which was anathema to the Jews, but which is part of Greek culture. You know, what's also interesting is that the apostles didn't create separate Jewish and Gentile churches. That would have made it so much easier, right? It would have bought them so much peace. But instead, what do you see in the epistles and in the book of Acts? You see Jews and Gentiles worshiping together in one church because that's the vision of Revelation. It's a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping the Lamb of God together. I believe, I believe this is the answer to the problem of race in our world. It is the church living out her mandate. It is the church becoming this alternate society from the world. Because in the world, ethnicity becomes, uh, ethnicity creates competition, rivalry, conflict. Right? Read Jonathan Haidt. But in the church, ethnicity is this beautiful, variegated harmony and unity. And the source of our unity The source of our unity is Christ. And this is very important for you to listen. The gospel, at the same time, celebrates our ethnicities, but it also relativizes it. So that our ethnicity is God-given. It's part of our humanness, right? There's no such thing as a neutral human being. We all have an ethnic identity, but if you follow Christ, Christ becomes your primary identity. He becomes your most fundamental identity so that if you follow Christ, 
you will have more in common with a fellow believer of a different ethnicity than a non-believer who is the same ethnicity. So that in the church, listen to me, it is our ethnic diversity that makes our unity glorious. Because the basis of our unity is not our sameness, it's Christ. And our differences don't hinder that truth, they magnify it. This is the answer. This is the answer to the problem of race. The biblical vision of race is not just mere equality. It's not just equal participation in the economy and equal treatment under the law. You know, those are good goals. And perhaps that is the best of what our world can hope for. But the Bible envisions something deeper and something um, more profound. Because the biblical vision is ethnicities joining and uniting and belonging together. That's the vision of the Bible. And it could only happen in the church. Because when the world tries to do this, when it is externally imposed, it creates, what do we see? Resentments, grudging compliance. Because the world is a zero-sum game where there are winners and there are losers because the world's logic is scarcity of resources. There's not enough to go around. But the church operates on the logic of love. And love delights to share. Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive. That only makes sense inside the church. That is not the ethic of the world. And so people have been asking, you know, what are we going to do as a church? What is our response as a church to all of this racial discord, racial division that we see in the world? And the answer, a big part of the answer, is that we are going to live out the gospel in our church. The vision of our church, that the elders we discussed and we, um, um, we had congregational meetings about this, the vision of our church is that we are going to follow Jesus and help others to follow Jesus. And when we say others, that has to mean our black and brown brothers and sisters. This has been one of the guiding visions of our church from the beginning, that we are going to be a multi-ethnic church. I never hid this. I stated this right from the beginning of our church. And we are going to be at least as multi-ethnic as the neighborhoods from in which we live and, and where we come from. There's been a lot of studies that show that churches in America are are actually more segregated racially than the neighborhoods in which they are located, which I think is a scandal. So part of our vision is that we are going to be a multi-ethnic church. Easier said than done. (laughs) Easier said than done. There's a lot of good books on this, and one of the books that I'm really looking forward to is, is coming out next month. It's called The Beautiful Community, Unity, Diversity, and the Church at Its Best by Erwin Innes. You know who Erwin Innes is? He is the moderator 
of the PCA, which is our denomination, last year, the moderator is sort of the highest elected office in the PCA. It's sort of very roughly like the president of the denomination. And Erwin Innes was the first African-American moderator of our denomination. And then before him, it was Alex Jun, who was the first Asian-American moderator of the PCA. And so there are strides being made. But if you read these books, they basically, the counsel and the advice falls into two buckets. The first counsel is that as a church, we should create a welcoming space for all people. We should foster a culture of inclusion. And so what that practically means is that the majority has to be willing to be discomforted to make space for the minority because um, people in the majority often don't realize that every church has a particular culture, a particular way of doing things, and that almost always reflects the people who are in the majority. So let me give you a very um, a small but not an inconsequential example of this. So a few years ago, somebody came up to me and he said, you know, I really love the catered lunches of our church. I, I love how it fosters community. But do you think that, you know, we can have more varieties of food other than just Asian food? And I remember thinking, you know, Asian food, you know, what are you talking about? It's just food. And of course, what I had forgotten as an Asian person is that I have grown up all my life comfortable and familiar with Asian food, and I had forgotten that all foods, there's no neutral food, all foods are situated in a culture and a a context, and that what is familiar and comfortable to me may not be so to other people, and that the food that we serve in the church can be a subtle signal that if that you are in an Asian church, and if you're not Asian, then maybe you're not welcome here. And so we talked about this as elders. You know, we were distressed about this. We said, this must not be. And so, you know, I've asked Tracy, and Tracy is really good about this, to always be mindful when she orders catered lunch to create a welcoming space for all people. The second thing is that we should make room at the table. We should raise up and empower minorities in leadership roles. And that doesn't mean we just sort of randomly pluck people and make them leaders, but we have to be intentional in leadership development and mentorship. And I have to say, I think our church has a long way to go in this. And the elders, we've been talking about this. You know, David Yee has been beating the drum on this, that once the pandemic is over, we are going to um, implement um, leadership development, spiritual leadership development workshops and seminars, and we're going to raise up the next generation of leaders for our church. And I also have to say that our denomination, notwithstanding the moderators, the two moderators, still has a long way to go. And the PCA is about 85% white, and um, it's one percent. It's about ten percent Asian, one percent Black, one percent Latino. And so uh, we've discussed that as elders, and we have decided to put our money where our mouth is, and we have pledged five thousand dollars this year, and we're going to continue to support it 
indefinitely in the years to come to what is called the PCA Unity Fund, which um, raises up and, and financially supports black and brown brothers studying and preparing for pastoral ministry. This is something that I really believe in. And, and I just want to share with you a personal story on this account. Some of you know my story. Um, when I was a young man, you know, I was trying to make it. You know, I was trying to get my first job, church job, in the PCA. And I found the whole experience to be really discouraging and dispiriting. And it felt to me like, you know, all the PCA leadership and all the PCA pastors um, were, they were all basically from the South, and it was sort of like a good old boys club. And, you know, they weren't necessarily intentionally excluding me. You know, no, I don't think anyone was being racist. But, you know, people just naturally operate within their networks. And it felt to me as an Asian person like I didn't have those networks. And I felt like an outsider looking in. And nobody came around and put me under their wings and mentored me and, you know, showed me the ropes. And so I think this is really important. This is something that I really believe in, the importance of mentorship, the importance of leadership development. And this is something that we are committed to as a church. That leads me to as a long first point. It's going to get a little bit faster. Second point, so how do we do this? And here I want to dive into the difficult question of where racism comes from. And I want to warn you, this whole section is a little bit disorganized. I basically threw in all my assorted thoughts that don't naturally flow together. Please bear with me. So the first thing I want to address is this whole debate of whether the problem of racism is primarily a heart issue of individual sins, as conservatives tend to see it, or is it a larger structural issue as progressives tend to see it? The book that I found uh, to be really helpful in this is called Divided by Faith. It's by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. They're sociologists, and they did this um, wide-scale survey, and they conducted hundreds and hundreds of interviews of evangelical Christian attitudes towards race. And the major finding of the book is that they discovered this wide and significant racial divide among Christians between the way white Christians and black Christians see the problem of racism. And so what they found is that white Christians, in general, okay, it's a broad you know, category, but in general tend to see racism as deliberate acts. They are these deliberate acts of discrimination and hatred. And in that sense, they see racism is on the decline in the United States. And if there is a problem, it's in talking about it. It's the media drumming it up. It's African-Americans who won't let go of the past, but who keep bringing it up, which ends up racializing their interactions so that they constantly see racial bias where it doesn't necessarily exist. And so, you know, for white Christians in general, they see this word racist 
which is a really ugly word, being used too frequently, too loosely in situations that don't necessarily fit. And so they object to this whole idea of corporate guilt, so that simply by being born a white person, you are automatically guilty of racism, even though individually you did not participate in slavery or in segregation. On the other hand, black Christians in general tend to see racism more broadly, not simply as overt acts, but as structures and systems that produce racial inequities. So that for black Christians, they constantly feel their blackness as a disadvantage. And they constantly you know, live and move in this oppressive atmosphere, which is pressing down on them. And in that sense, racism in America is very much alive and continues today. And the problem is not talking about it. It's pretending it doesn't exist, which allows people to passively participate and perpetuate unjust systems. So who is right? Who is right? Let me go back to the earlier question that I posed. Is racism primarily about individual hearts or is it about larger structures? And my answer is that it's both. It's both. Because systems and individuals are not disconnected, but they have a symbiotic relationship with each other. And the problem, I think, is if you think that racism is only a structural problem or only an individual problem. Because on the one hand, if you only look at structures, if you only focus on changing policies and laws, because there is a school of thought out there that says individuals are entirely shaped and determined by their social structures. And therefore, if you could dismantle systems of oppression, then you will have racial equality. But the problem with that perspective is that it ignores the fact that racism comes from the heart. Jesus says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, sexual morality, murder, theft, and so forth. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. And so without addressing the heart, all you're going to get is superficial compliance. And, not, and you're not going to address the root source. Let me give you a quick illustration. And every parent has experienced this. When your child misbehaves, you will ask your child, say you're sorry. And quite often, the child will say, I'm sorry. Now, they have complied. They have externally said the words you've asked them to say, but they're not sorry. And every parent knows that. And so you have to address the underlying heart issue behind racism. And we looked at that, we looked at that last week, right? It's, self, it's a heart of self-righteousness and pride. It's finding your self-worth by looking down on other people. And I think this is where the role of the church is important. The work of the church is heart transformation. On the other hand, 
if you only look at individuals, if you ignore structures, I'm sorry, but you're being naive about how evil works. Because the purpose of structures and institutions is to deepen and strengthen individual actions. Think about, as an example, think about the institution of the church. You know, And we say this all the time here at IGC. You cannot be a solitary Christian out there all on your own because your faith won't survive. It will die. And so you need the church to nourish your faith and to reinforce your faith. And therefore, structures are important. And we should not be surprised that sinful hearts produce sinful structures. And I think what makes this whole conversation so complicated, and what I'm about to say is going to be contested, and I think that's okay, um, um, you don't have to agree with the specific subpoint to appreciate the larger point I'm trying to make, but I believe this is the, the, the larger consensus view, okay? So what makes this whole discussion about structures complicated in the U.S. is that the intent of the structures in the U.S. aren't racist. The systems were designed ostensibly to be colorblind. And yet we end up with these inequitable outcomes. So you see this in the criminal justice system and in the education system where most of, and maybe we could even say the vast majority of the participants are not racists, at least in the, in the narrow sense that most people understand. This is the argument that Eduardo Bonilla Silva makes in his very influential and often cited book, Racism Without Racists. And so most of the participants are not racists, and yet we have these structures that produce enormous inequities and disadvantages. And we should all be troubled by this. And I think what makes this even more complicated discussion is the role of poverty in all of this. We know that poverty and race are linked. And so what role does poverty play as an explanation for some of these inequalities? But regardless of all of this, in the end, what we have in the United States are long-standing, multi-generational Differential racial outcomes. And in some cases, it's getting worse. The rates of black incarceration is worse today than it was 50 years ago. What is going on? So what do we do? I think that if you look at the Bible, you see this same problem of racial disharmony in the early church. And how did the church address it? They addressed it both by individual actions so that, you know, you have Paul rebuking Peter, right, for breaking table fellowship in Galatians chapter 2. And Paul says, Peter, you're not walking in line with the gospel. He addresses the heart issue behind uh, mistreatment of, of racial groups. And not only individual action, you also see changes in systems. We see this in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 is 
a very helpful and I think very significant chapter in the Bible to help us understand this issue. So let me explain. In Acts chapter 6, what you have is the Jerusalem church, which, is, which was the first church, the early church. And in the Jerusalem church, you had two groups of believers. You had what were called the Hebrews and you had the Hellenists. Now the Hebrews and the Hellenists, they were both Jewish, okay? But the Hebrews, they grew up in the Jewish homeland and they were culturally Jewish. They spoke the language of Palestine at the time, which was Aramaic, which was the language of Jesus. And so they were culturally Jewish. On the other hand, you had the Hellenists. And the Hellenists lived in the greater Mediterranean world. They were part of the Jewish diaspora. And so they grew up you know, surrounded by and adapting the Greek culture around them. And they spoke Greek. And the dynamic is very similar to immigrant families, right? So you have immigrants who move to who come to the United States, and then you have the first generation, the parents, holding on to the culture and the language of their home country, and then you have the second generation, the children of the immigrants, adapting the culture of the host country and the language of the host country, right? I'm a second generation immigrant, which is why I lost my Korean abilities. So you had the the Hebrews and the Hellenists. And so what was going on in the Jerusalem church is they had these poor widows, these destitute widows, and the church living out the gospel, the teachings of Jesus, through its mercy ministry, provided food and aid to these widows, the distribution of bread. But what was going on, okay, listen to this, is that the Hellenist widows were being excluded and neglected. Now, what was going on? You have to understand that the church was located in Jerusalem, which is the center of Jewish life. Most of the members of the church were Hebrews. All of the apostles were Hebrews. And therefore, naturally, you could understand all the power, all the the leadership was concentrated and monopolized by the Hebrews. And even though everyone, Hebrew and Hellenist, were sincere believers, they truly were followers of Jesus. We're talking weeks, months after Pentecost. Nevertheless, this age-old racial divide reared its ugly head. And the Hellenists, who were in the minority, found themselves discriminated against. Now, the text doesn't tell us You know, whether this discrimination was overt, was it intentional acts of of exclusion, or was it more subtle cultural differences and misunderstandings? It doesn't matter. There was a problem of racial inequality in the early church. And so what happened then is that the Hellenists, the Hellenist believers complained. They raised the issue. And the apostles, they discussed what was going on And the apostles recognized the problem. They didn't get defensive. They didn't deflect. They said, this is not right. And then they instructed the congregation to pick among themselves seven godly men of good repute, full of the spirit, full of wisdom, to oversee the distribution of bread. And the congregation then elected seven, these seven godly men 
who loved Jesus. And the apostles laid their hands on these seven godly men and appointed them for leadership. These are, these are you know, what we would call the first proto-deacons. And in verse 5, the passage goes out of its way to list the names of all seven godly men. And did you know the names of all seven men were Greek names? They were all Hellenists. What happened? The apostles and the early church, in order to rectify this injustice, they raised up and they appointed Hellenist leaders. You know, they could have made it equal, right? They could have said, we're going to appoint three people from one group and then four people from another group. Well, that isn't quite fair. Okay, the seventh person will be a rotating chair position, six months from one group, six months in another group. Okay, now it's perfectly even. They didn't do that. What did they do? They empowered the disempowered, marginalized group. And the text tells us this was all directed by the Spirit. And it tells us that the word of God increased and the number of believers multiplied and the ministry of the gospel of Jesus flourished and all of Jerusalem was astonished. They had never seen anything like this. Some of you are getting excited and I can see sort of the gears turning in your head. And you're saying, we need to do this in the United States. We need to adopt this as public policy. But let me offer a word of caution. And I want to say here again, the world is not the church. Because in the church, we have shared convictions. We have this community of love, which allows people to voluntarily lay down their rights and serve one another. But the world is not like that. The world is full of competing interests and agendas and policies are imposed, not willingly received. And therefore, I want to be honest with you, the world is not a safe place to practice the kind of self-giving love that Jesus calls the church to practice. And therefore, we must recognize the limits of politics and public policy. And before I continue, let me clarify what I am not saying. I am not saying politics and public policy are unimportant. They are important. We are irreducibly political creatures. I am not saying that you shouldn't try to address issues of injustice through public policy and through the government. That is a legitimate role of the government. However, however, as Christians, we must recognize the limited role of government. Because when you read Romans 13, 1 Peter chapter 2, it talks about the primary role of government is to restrain evil and to create structures of fair play and equity. But in a pluralistic society like the United States, the government cannot and must not dictate our consciences. Or in other words, you cannot legislate love and brotherhood. That is the work of the gospel, not civil government. It's a category mistake. 
And therefore, the church, this is the argument I'm trying to make, hear me, the church is a unique arena where we can practice and live out the gospel, where we can be a shining beacon to the world. But we must always remember that the church is not the world. The world has God's common grace. There is true beauty and goodness in this world, thank God. But it doesn't have the gospel of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean the government isn't a legitimate avenue to redress issues of injustice. But it has limited power. We must be modest about what we can expect. Let me add some additional thoughts. And this is where my sermon becomes disorganized, okay? Because this is where, you know, things don't flow naturally. Let me also say, and I think it's important to say, that the problems that we see in the black community are not just external problems, but they are also internal. It is not just unjust structures without pressing in, but it is also moral problems within pressing out. And let me here speak very carefully. And let me first say that every culture and every ethnicity has both beauty and brokenness. And the same is true of the black community. And I think what is beautiful about the black community, this is just my own personal observation, is that in the black community, I think they have this deep soulfulness. And there's great artistic and spiritual depth in the black community. And I think that's wonderful. But there are also brokenness. You know, and a lot of thoughtful black thinkers and thought leaders have commented on them. So, for example, there tends to be a culture of consumerism and materialism in the black community. People have also commented on the decline of the black family and the absence of black fathers. This is compounded and complicated by, you know, the problem of of incarceration, but that doesn't fully explain the precipitous drop of marriage rates in the black community. And if you are a black Christian, you can look at these problems honestly and soberly because you are secure in Christ. Now, while I'm on the subject of internal problems, let me direct the same critical lens on the church. And I want to say the church is not without fault in committing racial injustices on black people. And let me here speak about what I know best, which is the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, which is our denomination. And let me first say that I am proud to be part of the PCA. I love the PCA. I think it has incredible theological depth. I love the Reformed tradition. But let me tell you a little bit about the PCA. It was founded in 1973 after, a few years after, the era of segregation and Jim Crow. However, the PCA came out of the Southern Presbyterian Church. And a significant number of PCA churches participated in and furthered 
the regime of segregation in the South, and before that, slavery. And these PCA churches, they weren't just passively permitting these things to happen. They weren't just leaving unremarked the racial issues of their day. But listen to me. They were actively preaching arguments, flawed arguments from the Bible for the separation of the races and for slavery not only being permissible, but actually a good thing. There were slave masters and slave owners among PCA pastors or Presbyterian pastors. And there were PCA churches in which there were balconies where black people were told to sit or sometimes outright told that they were not welcomed in their churches. This is part of the legacy of the PCA. And it has been acknowledged. It has been repented of. A few years ago, the General Assembly overwhelmingly voted in favor of an overture stating as much. And I think it is a good thing. And let me say, furthermore, as an ordained officer of the PCA, let me express remorse and repentance for the injustices that the church has committed against our black brothers and sisters. There's so much more that can be said on this. But I think it also touches on a deeper issue. If you read American history, you will recognize a deep paradox in the church. And here I'm talking about the broader church, the church in America. Because on the one hand, the church was the leading voice in the abolition of slavery. This is uncontested, unquestionable. Evangelical Christians Christians were absolutely at the forefront of the abolition movement, both in the UK and here in the United States. And then in the civil rights movement, it was the black church who took the lead. And when black pastors preached about black dignity, they didn't use secular arguments. They preached from the Bible. The Bible has deep resources for justice. And so you see the church at the forefront of numerous reform movements in the United States. But at the same time, the region in the United States that was the most churched, the region from which the PCA came out of, perpetrated the worst injustices on the black community. And not just in spite of, but because of scripture, they would quote the Bible in defense of segregation. Why is that? Why is that? I think it's very hard to escape culture. It's very hard to let, to not let the broader culture dictate your thinking. I, re- I read this recently, and I thought it was really powerful. There, uh, there's an American history professor, and he says every time he has a new class, he would ask his class this question. He says, how many of you, if you were a white person living in the South before the Civil War, right during the time of slavery, how many of you would speak up against slavery and work tirelessly to end it. 
He says, every time he asks this question, all the hands are raised. All the hands. He says, but in reality, almost no one would. Because had they done so, it would have made them deeply unpopular with their peers. And they would have, they would have been abandoned by all their friends. They would have been ridiculed and rejected by society. Powerful institutions would have denounced them. And they would lose all professional advancement and economic opportunity. And they would live as pariahs from their community as a result of their moral witness. This professor says that in reality, almost no one in his classrooms, and I can say this applies also to everyone in this room and everyone who is on the live stream, almost no one would have spoken up against slavery or even so much as lifted a finger to free the slaves. And in fact, many of us would have supported the slave system and happily benefited from it. Because that's what happened to the vast, vast majority of white people who were living in the South under the slave system. I think it is easy to join a bandwagon. It is easy to speak up for justice issues when they are popular. When it wins you the approval of your peers. When the elite institutions of the nation signal their approval. And when it confers upon you economic benefits. But how many of us would speak up for God's justice and righteousness at the risk of our futures? with the rejection of society. What evidence in your life demonstrates this kind of moral courage? You know, if I'm really honest with myself, I have to recognize that fundamentally, I'm no different than the slave trader, than the plantation owner in the antebellum South. So what is the answer? And here we go to the third point. And I want to bring you back to our passage in Revelation 7, where you see this vision of this multi-ethnic congregation. And at the end, the congregation cries out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, listen, and to the Lamb. Did you know that the book of Revelation, more than any other book in the New Testament, refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God. In the rest of the New Testament, all the other books in the New Testament, Jesus is called the Lamb five times. Twice in John chapter 1, where John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Five times in the rest of the New Testament, 27 times in the book of Revelation. In fact, Jesus is called the Lamb above all his other titles in Revelation. What is going on? What does this mean? What does it mean that in the book of Revelation you have this juxtaposition, these two things, this multi-ethnic congregation on the one hand, worshiping, on the other hand, Jesus as the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain. I think this tells us that racism is not ultimately a sin that we commit against each other. It is not just a horizontal sin 
But it is first and foremost a vertical sin against God. We have offended a holy God so that when we mistreat, even if we should be indifferent to or neglect our fellow image bearer, we have insulted and offended God. And this sin cannot be atoned for by good works or allyship. Even the most woke anti-racist is still a sinner before God. And therefore, our only hope is the Lamb. This perfect God-man who came and who lived this perfect life. And on the cross, he stood in our place. And he took the punishment that we deserve. And when we believe in him, all our sins are washed away. This is why in Revelation 7, uh, there's this image of the multitude, all of the wearing white robes. The white robe symbolizes our cleansing, that we have a right standing before God so that it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. If you put your life in Christ, you are forgiven. And when you believe that, when the vertical relationship is made right, it will have vast, vast implications for your horizontal relationships. So that when you see Christ's self-giving love for you, to the extent that you meditate on it and it becomes the controlling power of your life, you will be able to give and extend self-giving love to others. You will be able to love the stranger, welcome the foreigner as the Bible commands us. And you will be able to live out Micah 6.8, do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly before our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing vision of racial healing and reconciliation we see in the gospel. And we recognize it's not easy. Very, very hard. And there's been a lot of hurt and deep wounds. But we pray that you would give us the courage and the love and the humility to love each other well, as you have loved us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.